the essence of saving faith is believing that God is good to me on the basis of what Christ has done. And my prayer is that you would, you would know that. That you would know that deeply and experientially, personally. God is good to me. And nowhere is God's goodness to us personally more clearly demonstrated than in the fact that He justifies us while we are yet ungodly, by faith alone, completely apart from our works. And that is the subject of Romans chapter 4 where we find ourselves this morning. Romans 4 is an extended defense of the earth-shattering assertion which Paul made back in Romans 3.28 that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what we're talking about in Romans chapter 4 is the doctrine of justification sola fide, or by faith alone. This was the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers were convinced that the church had lost this vital aspect of the gospel and thus had lost the gospel itself. Luther famously called justification sola fide the article by which the church stands or falls. Calvin called it the hinge on which the Christian religion turns. A strong case could be made, and I intend to make it over the next few weeks, that if you don't believe that you are justified by faith alone apart from works, then you aren't justified at all. Paul's defense of the doctrine of justification, sola fide, is rooted in the example of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, the father of the faith. And I mentioned last week that Paul's entire argument stands or falls with Abraham. You know, if one had to select the four most important figures of Jewish history, they would most likely be Abraham, Moses, David, and Elijah. But if one had to select from those one who was preeminent over them all, it would undoubtedly be Abraham. Abraham was the head of the family. It was with Abraham that God made the covenant. The rest are Abraham's descendants. Therefore, if Paul can establish that Abraham was justified before God by faith alone, apart from works, then he's gone a long way to establishing his case. But if Abraham was justified, whether in whole or in part, on the basis of his own righteousness, his own faithfulness, his own obedience, then Paul's case largely crumbles to the ground. And so, Paul takes on the case of Abraham in Romans 4. First, Paul proves that Abraham was not justified by his works. He was not justified by his own righteousness, but rather, he was justified by faith in God's promise. And to establish this, Paul makes two points, which we looked at last week in verses 1 to 8. First, he says, if Abraham was justified by his works, then he has something in which to boast. Verse 2. And that for Paul is a non-starter. Paul had such a radically God-centered sense of reality that it was inconceivable that man could come into right relationship with God in any way other than by sovereign, unmerited grace, 
which totally excludes all boasting. And then secondly, Genesis 15.6 explicitly says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 3. Paul then argues from the nature of work and wages in order to show that man cannot relate to God on the basis of works because God will be in no man's debt. You cannot work for God. God has no employees. Therefore, if we are to be justified at all, we must be justified by grace alone, through faith alone. We must come to God not as an employee seeking our wages, but as a helpless child receiving a gift. Paul then emphasizes that same principle from the testimony of David in verses 6 through 8. In today's passage, verses 9 to 12 then, Paul presents his second argument from the life of Abraham. This time, he's seeking to prove that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. Then, in verses 13 to 17, Paul will show that Abraham was not justified by the law. And finally, in 18 to 25, Paul will show that Abraham was justified by faith. And therefore, so must we. Before we jump into the text, I thought I would take a moment and address the question of why Paul had to deal with the subject of circumcision and why it still matters today. And we'll begin with Paul's immediate context. In Paul's day, circumcision held a place of supreme importance. For Jews, circumcision was unquestionably salvific. It marked one off apart from the unclean Gentile nations and admitted one into the membership of the people of God and it sealed to the one who was circumcised all of the blessings of God's covenant. According to one Old Testament scholar, no matter who a man's parents were, if he was not circumcised, he was not a Jew. If you doubt that first century Judaism attributed to circumcision a saving significance, I want to read to you just a few excerpts from the literature of the rabbis in and around the first century. Here's what the rabbis in Paul's day were saying about circumcision. One of them said, Great is circumcision, for despite all the religious duties which Abraham our father fulfilled, he was not called perfect until he was circumcised. Another one said, No Israelite man who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna." In other words, hell. If you're circumcised, you can't go to hell. Which raises the question, what what would happen if a circumcised Israelite was exceedingly faithless and wicked? Would he be spared the torments of hell just because he was circumcised? Well, the rabbis didn't like that option either, and so they because they held that no Israelite man who is circumcised will go down to hell, they, they posited that God sends an angel who stretches their foreskin, and then they descend to Gehenna. In other words, I know that's kind of gross, but in other words, so effective is circumcision that in order to condemn a wicked Israelite to hell, God sends an angel to uncircumcise him first. That's how important circumcision was in first century Judaism. Then along comes Paul, who tells the Jews that their circumcision avails them nothing towards their right standing with God. 
Even more scandalous, he tells them that Gentiles can be justified before God without being circumcised. So the issue of the place of circumcision in relation to the gospel became the issue facing the early church. It was so contentious that Paul's home church in Antioch and the church at Jerusalem, including all of the apostles and elders, they gathered together in Acts chapter 15 to discuss and debate and decide this matter once and for all. Paul's argument, which was supported by Peter's testimony and the guiding influence of the Holy Spirit won the day and it was declared by the Jerusalem council that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised in order to be saved and to become part of the people of God. That is, after all, what is at stake in this question. Who truly belongs to the people of God? Who are the true children of Abraham? Who are the true heirs of of the Abrahamic covenant and all of the promises. There are only three possible alternatives to the answer to that question. You could say those who are circumcised, in other words, Jews, are the true children of Abraham and the heirs of the promises. That was the prevalent first century view. You could say those who believe the gospel and are circumcised are the true children of Abraham and are the heirs of the promises. That's, that was the Jewish Christian view of the first century, the, the Judaizers. Or you could say, thirdly, those who believe regardless of whether they were circumcised, that is, all Christians, both Jew and Gentile, which was Paul's stance, Peter's stance, and became the stance of the church. Many Jews would have admitted that a Gentile by birth could become a part of the people of God if they became a Jew. That is, if they were circumcised and, and came underneath the law. But Paul concludes that a Gentile does not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Because justification has nothing whatsoever to do with circumcision. It's impossible to overstate how contentious an issue this was in the first centuries of the church. That's why Paul has to deal with it in Romans 4, 9 to 12. Okay, though, you might say, but we are 2,000 years removed from those debates. Today, Jews comprise a very, very, very small percentage of the global church. So nobody, except for maybe a, a few cults and a few lonely voices crying out from the fringe, would ever dream of suggesting that circumcision was an essential step in being justified before God. So why not just skip over this passage and all the awkwardness that attends to it and all the other ones that are scattered throughout the New Testament because it just doesn't have a whole lot to do with the issues we're dealing with today. Well, my answer to that is that we can't skip it, and not just because I'm kind of obsessive-compulsive about this. We can't skip it because the argument Paul makes is not confined to circumcision only, but relates to any external ritual that gets added to the necessity of saving faith. Paul is insisting in this passage that it is by faith alone, apart from circumcision, and by implication, apart from any other 
outward ceremony that a person is justified and included in the people of God. In other words, Paul's reasoning in verses 9 to 12 could be employed just as effectively to combat the idea that baptism contributes to one's justification. Or that the Lord's Supper contributes to one's justification. In fact, this passage effectively refutes any brand of sacramental theology which attaches saving significance to any outward ritual, outward physical ceremony whether it be the sacramental theology of the Catholic Church or the baptismal theology of the Restorationist Church, that's the Christian churches and the churches of Christ, or even, I would add, the whole apparatus surrounding the altar call, which I think has rightly been called the new evangelical sacrament, which says you have to do this in addition to faith in order to get right with God. Any theology which says you must do something outward, do something external, do something physical in addition to the spiritual response of repentance and faith in order to be justified falls under the condemnation of this passage. So Romans 4, 9-12 does not address some irrelevant theological debate of a bygone era. Rather, it addresses the fundamental question of human existence. That is, how can I be made right with God? How can I be justified before God? And it refutes the tendency found in every age to attach some external, outward, physical work to faith as the means of justification. So with that introduction, what I want to do is walk through what I see as the four stages of Paul's argument, and then I'm going to conclude with a couple of implications for us today at First Baptist Nixa. So let's walk through Paul's argument. It has four stages. Stage number one, the first point that Paul makes is that Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. The blessing to which Paul refers in verse 9 is the same blessing of which David spoke in verses 7 and 8. It's the blessing of having your lawless deeds forgiven. The blessing of having your sins forgiven covered, the blessing of having the Lord not count your sins against you. It's the blessing that Paul said in verse 6 is upon the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now in verse 9, he's asking, is this blessing, forgiveness, justification, is this blessing only for the circumcised? Is it only for the Jews? Or is it for the uncircumcised? Is it for the Gentiles? Now the answer to that question seems obvious to us, but it was not at all obvious to, in the first century because as we have seen, the prevailing opinion of the day among the Jews was that this blessing was only for the circumcised. 
If a Gentile wanted to be included in this blessing of forgiveness, righteousness, justification, they needed to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. They needed to be be circumcised and come under the, the law in order to be justified by faith and be made right with God. The dominant theology of the day was clear. No uncircumcised man will be justified in God's sight. I'll give you one more first century rabbinical work. comes from the book of Jubilees, which demonstrates this. One rabbi said this, And everyone that is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day, belongs not to the children of the covenant which the Lord made with Abraham, but to the children of destruction. Nor is there, moreover, any sign on him that he is the Lord's. So that's what Paul's coming up against in, in Romans 4.9. And in order to refute it, once again, as he did up in verse 3, he turns to Genesis 15.6, which explicitly says that the means by which Abraham was justified was faith. For we say that faith was counted to him for righteousness. So Paul's first argument is this. It was faith, not circumcision, by which Abraham was justified. The second step of Paul's argument is that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, this is an important step in Paul's argument because it answers a possible objection to the assertion that he made in verse 9. See, someone could say, Paul, no one's denying that faith is necessary for justification. Okay? For the most part, we've believed that all the way since the time of Abraham. Genesis 15.6 affirms only that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It does not deny that circumcision played a role as well. And by the way, the same argument is made with any form of sacramental theology. We're not saying, the Catholic Church says, that faith isn't essential. We're just saying it isn't enough. The Restoration Churches. We're not saying you don't have to believe in Jesus in order to be justified. We're just saying believing in Jesus isn't enough. You must also be baptized. You must also make use of the sacraments. Baptism without faith is useless, they claim. But they deny that faith alone saves, for unless one is baptized, one will not be justified. Likewise, I'll pick once, pick once more on the altar call method of evangelism. Those who utilize an altar call do not teach that, that walking an aisle or raising a hand or praying a prayer saves. They'll say, apart from repentance and faith, those things are empty. But then they'll t- come right around and they will say, though unless you are willing to walk the aisle, and willing to pray the prayer, then you probably really aren't sincere. 
In other words, responding in some physical and public manner is deemed necessary in order to demonstrate the sincerity of one's faith. But I would argue that in all of those traditions that are adding something physical, something outward, something external to the condition of faith are making the same mistake. It's not whether or not they think faith is necessary. The question is whether they believe faith is sufficient. The question is not whether faith saves. The question is whether faith alone saves. That is why the question of when Abraham was justified is important. Because if Abraham was justified after he was circumcised, then that leaves open the possibility that circumcision had some role to play in his justification. But if Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, then that irrefutably demonstrates that circumcision played no role in Abraham's justification at all. So which one is it, Paul asks? Well, Abraham's justification is recorded in Genesis 15, which according to the rabbis took place when Abraham was 70 years old. But Abraham's circumcision is recorded in Genesis 17, when Abraham is 99 years old, some 29 years after he was justified. Therefore, Paul concludes... Circumcision could have played no role whatsoever in Abraham's justification because Abraham was justified before God fully, finally, and forever 29 years before he was circumcised. That's his argument in verse 10. Well, what then was the meaning of Abraham's circumcision? This is the third step in his argument. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So what does circumcision do if it does not justify and does not play any role in justification? What, what is its purpose? Well, Paul answers that question by speaking of circumcision as a sign and a seal. Now, circumcision is called a sign of the covenant in Genesis 17:11, where God tells Abraham, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A sign is a visible symbol of an invisible reality. Now, the most familiar example in our culture of the function of a covenant sign is the wedding ring, okay? The wedding ring is a sign of the marriage covenant. Marriage is an invisible reality. It cannot be seen. It cannot be touched. When I got married, my status before God and my status in the world underwent a real change. I was really different. My state was really altered by marriage. But that change was not visible. I looked exactly the same the day before I got married as I did the day after I got married. For this reason, 
we attach a sign to the marriage covenant. In the wedding ceremony, each spouse puts a ring on the finger of their partner while they speak the promises of the covenant. And from that time forth, the ordinary ring becomes an extraordinary thing. It's a visible sign of the invisible marriage covenant. So if you did not know me, but you saw this ring on my finger, you could reasonably deduce that I was a married man. The ring sets me apart as one in covenant relationship with my wife and signifies her covenant promise to me to love, honor, and cherish me, forsaking all others for richer or for poorer, in sickness, in health, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Well, in the same way, circumcision was a sign of God's invisible covenant with Abraham, a covenant that began when Abraham was justified by faith and thereby entered into God's covenant of grace. But Abraham looked no different after his justification than he did before. The covenant of grace is an invisible reality. So the Lord gave to Abraham and to his descendants a visible sign which signified the I'm sorry, a visible sign which signified the invisible covenant. Circumcision marked Abraham and his descendants off as belonging to God's covenant people and signified all of the promises of that covenant. But circumcision is not only a sign of the covenant, Paul says it's also a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith, i.e. of his justification. Now to my knowledge, this is brand new with Paul. Circumcision is never called a seal anywhere in the Old Testament. The word seal refers to a confirmation or authentication. John Murray explains the difference when he says that a sign points to the existence of that which is signified, whereas a seal authenticates, confirms, and guarantees the genuineness of that which is signified. So that Paul calls circumcision a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith means that circumcision served as God's authentication of Abraham's justification. Just like a king would, would set a seal on an official proclamation by, by daubing hot wax on the scroll and then, and then taking his signet ring and, and pressing it into the wax... Then, when anyone saw the king's seal upon the document, they knew that it bore his royal authority. Now, an important point to remember in all of this is that neither the sign nor the seal adds anything to that which, to which they are attached. This wedding ring in no way alters my marital status. I am neither more married when I have it on, nor less married when I take it off. Marriage and the wedding ring are two totally separate things, though they are intimately related. The king's seal in no way changes the wording of the proclamation, and it doesn't add to the proclamation's authority. Those words are the king's words, whether or not the king's seal is affixed. Well, likewise, circumcision added nothing to Abraham's justification. 
He was not less justified before he was circumcised, nor more justified after he was circumcised. Circumcision was merely the visible emblem of God's covenant with Abraham and God's authenticating seal that he was justified by his faith. Then in the latter part of verse 11 and on into verse 12, Paul proceeds to explain God's purpose behind this all-important sequence of first justification, then circumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul says, you know, God had a purpose in this 29-year delay between Abraham's justification and his circumcision. This this nearly 30-year gap was intended to show that justification is not accomplished in whole or in part through circumcision, but only through faith in God's promise. Therefore, Paul says, anyone who believes in God's promise can be justified just like Abraham, whether or not they are circumcised. In other words, Gentile believers are justified in the same way as Abraham and are brought into the very same covenant as Abraham, who becomes their father. But Paul goes further. Not only does the fact that Abraham was justified while he was uncircumcised mean that Gentiles who believe may also be justified without being circumcised, But the fact that Abraham wasn't merely circumcised, but he first believed, means that circumcision is not sufficient to make one right with God. Which, as we saw earlier, was the assumption of most first century Jews. It is not enough to be circumcised, Paul says. One must also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So in these two verses, in verse 11 and verse 12, Paul has just radically redefined the people of God. The covenant people are not, says Paul, those who are circumcised. The covenant people are those who believe whether or not they are circumcised. An uncircumcised Gentile who believes the gospel is justified before God and is a child of Abraham. A circumcised Jew who believes the gospel is justified before God and is a child of Abraham. A circumcised Jew who does not believe the gospel is not justified before God and is not a true child of Abraham. Which brings us to the undeniable conclusion of Paul's argument. Therefore, circumcision or any other work, is irrelevant to justification. Justification played no role, no part whatsoever in... Circumcision played no role, no part whatsoever in Abraham's justification. Neither then does it play any role in the justification of any sinner. Justification is as it has always been by faith alone. But I want you to watch something very important. This does not mean, however, 
that in Abraham's time or under the old covenant, circumcision was insignificant. On the contrary, circumcision was commanded by God as a sign and seal of his covenant. And it was so important to God that he explicitly excluded anyone from the covenant people who would not be circumcised. Genesis 17, 14, very same chapter in which God gives Abraham circumcision. He says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So no male could be part of the people of God unless he was circumcised. But that did not mean that he was justified by a circumcision. Rather, he was justified only by trusting in the covenant mercies of God. Now, that's Paul's argument. How does this apply today? Well, as I stated earlier, I believe this passage has relevance for today, particularly to the way in which we view baptism. But in order to get to those implications, I need to show you that there is a correspondence between Old Covenant circumcision and New Covenant baptism because it may not be immediately apparent. They may seem like two separate things in your mind. You may be saying, I I get that Abraham wasn't justified by his circumcision and therefore nobody else is justified by circumcision, but what has that got to do with baptism? Well, circumcision and baptism are related both in terms of their function and in terms of their meaning. As we have seen, Paul says that circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants after him. And that it was a seal of Abraham's justification by faith. Furthermore, we learn from later on in the Old Testament that circumcision pointed to another spiritual reality beyond justification, namely regeneration. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, Moses promises, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the circumcision of the flesh under the old covenant was a sign of the circumcision of the heart that change of heart wrought by God that resulted in true affection for God. In short then, circumcision was a sign of a new heart, a new love, a new life. It was a sign of new birth. So circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Okay, The old covenant was the covenant of grace prior to the, the death and resurrection of Christ. The sign that you were included in the covenant of grace before the death and resurrection of Christ was circumcision. And circumcision signified that one belonged to the covenant people and it symbolized both regeneration by the Holy Spirit and justification by faith. That's what circumcision meant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. The new covenant is the one covenant of grace since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace fulfilled everlastingly in Jesus. And baptism likewise is a visible sign pointing to invisible realities. 
What are those realities? Baptism is also a sign of the righteousness that is by faith. It is a sign that we have been brought into right relationship with Christ, not by our own works, but by being united with Christ through faith in his death and his resurrection. And we have been raised with Christ in order to walk in a new life. That's Romans 6.4. Turn over there with me and I'll show you the correspondence. Romans 6.4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, baptism is, like circumcision, a sign of new birth, new love, new life. In other words, the meaning of baptism is the same as the meaning of circumcision. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, signifying our place among the covenant people of God and symbolizing both regeneration by the Spirit and justification by faith. Now, there are some important differences between circumcision and baptism, and those differences align with the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. For instance, the old covenant had some nationalistic ethnic components that are not found in the multinational, multi-ethnic New Covenant. Therefore, while the Old Covenant people of God were commanded to circumcise all of their male children regardless of their faith, which is why Abraham circumcised Isaac and Ishmael, the New Covenant people of God are only to baptize those who believe. In other words, there is a sense in which unbelieving Israelites were included in the national ethnic aspect of the Old Covenant. Therefore, all Israelites received a sign of circumcision. But there is no sense in which an unbeliever is included in the New Covenant, and therefore only believers should be given the New Covenant sign of baptism. All right? But even with that distinction in mind, the overlap in meaning between circumcision and baptism means that there are some important implications for today's church. And I'm going to mention just two. First, participation in baptism does not justify the sinner. Just as Abraham was not justified by being circumcised, but rather was justified by faith alone before he was circumcised. Neither is anyone justified by baptism, but rather must be justified by faith alone before receiving baptism. If one is unjustified when they enter into the water, they are still unjustified when they emerge from the water. If one is unregenerate when they enter the water, dead in trespasses and sins, they are just as unregenerate and spiritually dead when they exit the water. The water effects no change either spiritually or legally before God. It is a sign. It is a symbol. It plays no role whatsoever, causal or instrumental or otherwise, in either regeneration or justification. 
Now, for those of us who were born and raised in a Baptist church, that's not news, right? We've been told our whole lives that baptism does not save. The problem with us is that we have a hard time understanding why it's important at all, which I'll get to in my second implication. But you know what? For those raised in the Catholic Church or the Church of Christ or the Christian Church or the Lutheran Church, this truth contradicts those traditions' baptismal theologies. And it causes no small amount of confusion when they come into our church and they hear something completely different. So my hope is that this morning's message has clarified somewhat our position on baptism. Because of Romans 4, 9-12, we affirm that justification is by faith alone and we deny that baptism plays any role in justification. And despite the great continuities between the Old and the New Covenants, because of the differences between the Old and the New Covenants in terms of who composes the people of God, we affirm that only those who are already justified by faith should be baptized, and we deny that baptism should be given to our unbelieving children. That's implication number one. We are Baptists in large measure because of Romans 4, 9 to 12. But the second implication speaks specifically to Baptists. Baptism is still significant as a sign and seal of justification. Because the implication of that first point is not going to strike most of us as new or life-changing. It's essentially what we've always believed. Baptism doesn't save even if we're not quite sure why we've believed it. The more important implication for those raised in the Baptist tradition who have heard our whole lives baptism doesn't save is that this doesn't mean then that baptism is unimportant. That baptism becomes then a a take-it-or-leave-it addition to faith. On the contrary, though it does not justify, baptism is significant as a sign and seal of our justification. The analogy to the wedding ring and the royal seal applies just as much to baptism in the new covenant as it did to circumcision in the old covenant. In baptism, it's as if Christ places a ring on our finger in order to symbolize that we are his beloved bride and that he promises to love and care for us eternally and to return for us, to return to take us to his everlasting home where we will dwell with him forever. This is the sign of our betrothal. Baptism is. The new covenant is an invisible reality, but baptism takes that invisible reality and it makes it visible. Likewise, it is a seal of the righteousness which God has imputed to us by faith. In baptism, God takes his royal seal. It's like he takes that hot wax, he puts it upon our hearts, and he he seals it, authenticating and confirming our justification. So baptism retains tremendous significance as a sign and seal of our justification. And it's not optional. 
given the tight correlation that I've tried to show you between circumcision of the old covenant and baptism of the new covenant, is there any reason to believe that God's posture towards baptism and its necessity is any different than his posture towards circumcision and its necessity? You remember what he said in Genesis 17, 14? Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Is there any reason to believe that in the new covenant it could not likewise be said any unbaptized person who refuses to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit shall be excluded from the people of God. He has broken my covenant. It would be like a bride refusing to wear her wedding ring because she doesn't want to be tied down to any one man. She's broken covenant with her husband. So is baptism significant? Yes. Is baptism necessary? Yes. Does baptism justify? Absolutely not. There is no work, no baptism, no hand-raising, no aisle-walking, no prayer-praying, no physical response whatsoever which contributes in any way to our justification. So if you would be justified this morning, if you came in this morning and you knew your sins were not forgiven, you knew God still counted your sins against you, you stand guilty before Him this morning. If you would come into right relationship with God, you must not be baptized. You must first believe. And faith is not the physical movement of the body from your chair to the front of the church or the physical movement of your body through the waters of baptism. Faith is the spiritual movement of the heart towards Christ in which you lay before Him your sin, you take from Him His righteousness. So if you would be justified this morning, you must give yourself to Christ by faith. But if you have been justified by faith, then you must be baptized. If you've never been baptized, as a believer, after justification, then you need to be. So I would invite you to come speak with me after the service or contact one of our elders, and they will be happy to walk you through that process. And and why would you not? Jesus, the glorious bridegroom, wants to put his ring on your finger and with it seal his covenant promise to you. Baptism is where you take that sign and seal from him. So believe. Believe. And be baptized, for that is how you come into covenant relationship with God.